Hello, and welcome to Masnaigan Isquio. I'm Kayla Larson, and I'm here with... Tanya Ball. Sheila LaRock. And we're going to be talking about Indigenous publishing today. <laughs> now what, hey? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I guess what we wanted to accomplish with this first intro episode is to introduce ourselves. So, who are you? Who am I? I guess yeah. we should talk about, uh, I should have thought about this before. Are you just going to get <laughs> philosophical with who you are? Like, who am I? Yes. Who am I? <laughs> I'm always philosophical. Um, so I guess I can start. My name is Tanya. Hi, everybody. I am, I identify as a Métis woman. I, my family is from St. Ambrose, Manitoba, which is just at the base of Lake Manitoba, a small village there. Currently, I'm a student at the Faculty of Native Studies doing my PhD on Métis ghost stories, which I think is very cool. Yeah, I guess that's it. I've been a librarian for a long time, but not anymore. I'm out. But that's it. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, cool. So, hi, everyone in podcast land. Uh, my name is Sheila LaRock. I identify as Métis. I, my family comes from near uh, Duck Lake, Saskatchewan. That's my father's side where my Métis lineage comes from. My mom is originally from outside of London, Ontario. I am currently a librarian. I've been a librarian, working in libraries since 2013. I've lived all over what we call Canada. And yeah, interested in books and how they get into our hot little hands and all things publishing, uh, which goes beyond books. And yeah, that's me. Cool. Um, so I am Kayla Larson. I identify as a Métis woman. My family is kind of from all over the place as well. We're, we're definitely Métis wanderers, but mostly located in Manitoba and Alberta. Currently, I am acting, I am employed, I'm not acting as, I'm employed as a librarian with the University of Alberta. I work in digital initiatives. It's okay. <laughs> 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 I'm also an embedded librarian with a transition year program, which is first year Indigenous students on campus. I'm also a sessional instructor for the School of Library and Information Studies at the University of Alberta, and I'm teaching Indigenous LIS in a Canadian context with Tanya as well. Okay, so I guess let's talk about what brought us here today. Yeah. We're in my house. Yes. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> oh, I guess technically I moved in here in July. <laughs> yeah, that's what brought me here today. Um, but what, I guess you, you want... just walked downstairs. Yeah, like, yeah I just I'm walked here. Downstairs, uh, got dressed. But I guess what brought me to this project. When Tanya was first talking about it, I thought that was amazing. I've always wanted to like get into podcasting, big fan of the medium. And starting conversations about publishing is really important because I think we've had a lot of dominant scare quotes, indigenous voices in publishing that have taken up a lot of space. We need to talk to some other people. Yeah. So what brought me here today was, well, I drove on over to the south side from the north side, north side represent. Uh, <laughs> but what brought me here was, I, I don't know, I kind of have a weird relationship with publishing. I like to think depending on the day my idea of how I feel about publishing changes or how many coffees I've had sometimes and just get that espresso into you and you start shaking and getting just right pissed off about things. Either I really like publishing and I think it's a great thing for Indigenous people to be part of or depending on the day and what's going on I think it's like the most violent thing and I'm just not about it at all so I'm kind of I think I don't know enough about publishing and publishing practices so yeah I don't know I just I don't think I know enough about kind of like the back end part of publishing and the possibly that's to do on how transparent publishers are with their um, individuals that they're working with but I feel like I just don't have enough and maybe that's what's like driving my negative perception of publishing in some cases. I guess I got here also from the north side super <laughs> super far north side so it was a bit of a trek but I made it and I didn't get lost thank you Google. I don't know this morning I went to the Halloween store which was pretty awesome. I'm jealous. I was terrified. Actually, it was kind of funny because they have this little like makeshift haunted house and I went in there and I screamed so loudly that I pummeled over my own children. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, what's going on? And I'm just screaming. It was really awful. But 
Oh. <laughs> Ooh, bad mom moment, I think. <laughs> I have a lot of those. Outside of that, I mean, I'm really, really interested in pub- editing. I guess it's more editing, publishing, and writing of Indigenous stories. I'm really into storytelling as a medium and as a cultural, it's a really huge cultural thing. Well, I don't want to say a lot of experience. I've had a little tiny bit of experience within the publishing world. I used to work as an intern through the U of A intern, Indigenous Internship working at the publishing house and I was there for about two years but I didn't get to get too uh too into I guess what everything that's going on I'm really into sensitivity reading because I really think that people miss a lot of subtle cultural things including the U of A other than that I don't know I guess that's my experience I've worked a little bit with uh sensitivity reading and Kayla (laughs) has been smacking me for that (laughs) no it's fine you're published like (laughs) <laughs> Sensitivity reading is totally fine, but I there's not just, like, one way of doing things. That's my thing. I'm always, like, I'm a little, like, shit disturber. Constructive shit disturbing is totally fine, and I'm a true believer that there's not always just, like, one way of doing things, and there isn't always just, like, one person that has to be right just because they... I'm I'm gonna write the next book about indigenous publishing practices. There we go. So there's not just one about <laughs> editing style. <laughs> cool. I'd buy it. Sure. Uh-huh. Well, good. One person would buy it. Yes, I would. Yes, I would. Well, that's the thing, right? And I think you're onto something. Is that there's I hate that stereotype that there's uh, just one indigenous peoples, right? It's just it feeds into that pan Indian stereotype that. If I'm Indigenous and I'm doing a sensitivity reading, that absolutely every single Indigenous person is going to agree with what I say. Because yeah. that's absolutely not true. We all have different uh, perspectives based on, I guess, where it is that we're coming from and how, I guess, how connected to community you are mm-hmm. and which community you're talking about. Because there's lots of communities that I know nothing about. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Which is why these types of things, it needs to be a conversation. Mm-hmm. Which is why it's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that we're here sure. today, I guess. All right. So, what was everyone's first experience with publishing like? You go first. Oh, okay. <laughs> Just put right on the spot. Um, so, I have one kind of academic paper that's been published in a journal, and it was a big collaboration of individuals. I felt like I didn't do a lot, mostly because I was kind of like the junior on the project and had never published before. So, I'm pretty sure that I'm like listed last out of everybody if not somebody else in this room might actually be listed last on the paper I think she was actually last yeah but it was one of those things like everybody had been publishing or had like academic publishing so much under their belts that it was just kind of like I did a little bit for it but didn't do much and I was very new to also idea of decolonizing metadata and descriptive practices and I was in my like first year of university when this started as an MLIS student so I knew like nothing about metadata and I barely knew why I was being invited to be on this project and so for me mostly like what I actually talked about within the paper was just like general things about Indigenous people in Canada and like wrote a very small section and then everybody else did a lot more within the paper so that was my first experience kind of having like an academic published paper yeah I knew nothing I shouldn't say I knew didn't know anything I knew a little bit about the journal that we were publishing in and the individuals who had asked us to actually publish so I did know the people that were asking for the publication but I knew very little about like everything else like the contracts signing like I think it's copyrights yeah yeah so signing like copyright agreements well you don't get paid for it so I didn't get a paycheck which was kind of crappy as a student but you can't put your hand out and ask for money for everything I guess I feel like you can maybe yeah you can yeah Yeah. and even talking about like open access there was no like conversation with me about like if it's an open access journal if it's like closed and then I guess my other experience with wait before you what? move on, can we rewind for a few minutes? Sure. So you you just mentioned that you were a student and you were brought into this room with a bunch of other librarians to right. talk about metadata and you had no idea anything Even what about metadata, metadata was. was. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. like let's let's unpack that a little bit. Like why yeah. were you in that room? Um, I got asked to be part of the project to kind of do the first part of like community connections and getting kind of a feel about how like university students, faculty, staff that are Indigenous felt about, like, our metadata practices and do a little bit of just, like, 
consultations without actually necessarily disseminating any type of like final work because we didn't have ethics to do that. But it was more like they wanted my opinion on what I thought was like appropriate metadata. So that's what I was brought in more of like the community aspect of it. Definitely not like anything technical especially because I didn't even know what metadata was, especially being so new to the profession. It was a little bit weird, but eventually, like, as I grew as a student and, like, a professional, it made, like, a little bit more sense to me why I was there. But then Sheila came in the second year of the project and took over. So I just did a little bit, like, barely anything with the project after that (laughs) because she had more experience and was getting paid to do it. So that was also nice. Yeah. I'm kind of like, what's our academic freedom again? What are we allowed to say? Maybe we should have this before. Yeah. I don't know. To me, that sounds like tokenism. Well, I mean, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I, I have this weird thing about, like, tokenism, though, because, like, if I'm at the point where, like, there's so, and we shouldn't be like this, but there's, like, so few people that actually act in, like, a good way with, like, Indigenous communities that it's almost like it's this little, like, not a bodyguard, but it's just, like, you better invite me so that you don't mess up because someone is will probably mess up and do something that they shouldn't have. So it's almost like that mediator where you're, like, okay, we just want to make sure that this is going good. And like, I was a Native Studies student. So I know like a lot of community members. So it was a good way of like, interacting with people. And also they tend to be a little bit more like students, faculty, staff tend to be a little bit more candid when they know somebody and actually will tell you how they feel as compared to somebody like that they don't know at all. So that was kind of a good part about being on it. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to. Oh, yeah, no worries. (laughs) I think my other like, publishing story is like a little bit weirder than that mm-hmm. wanna did you want to add anything onto that project before we move on oh well I'll just say like I'm really grateful that you got thrown into that weird project because part of the recommendations was to hire someone and that person ended up being me yeah uh, which is really hilarious I had a little bit of experience working with institutions who are starting to grapple with their metadata practices, or should I say, I was at CBC on an Indigenous Languages project, and I was like, you guys, you really do need to think about how you're going to be classifying this information about these communities. And I maybe they did, maybe they didn't. I don't know. The project got moved to Yellowknife, so then when that happened, I was kind of looking around like you know I don't have a lease I'm not dating anyone I already have the pills to like put my cat on a plane like what am I what am I doing in Toronto (laughs) to drunk your cat (laughs) yeah like and then I ended up leaving the cat in Toronto and I just started applying for like everything outside of outside of inside the GTA um anything within Canada really and Edmonton was what stuck so I moved yeah And then I worked on the decolonizing description project for about a year with you guys. And you did have a lot to do. I don't know. I don't think I did anything for that project. Yes, you did. But uh, that's how we got to know each other. And that's how we got to come through on this project. And what's your other weird... Oh, God. Okay. So my newest weird publishing story is... I guess my second ever publication that I've done was I was approached at a conference by an individual that I knew and asked to do a book chapter with them, which was totally fine. Like, it was a great way of kind of like trying a different form of publishing. It was just a bit weird. Like, I understood like what they wanted and it was publishing for like film studies anthology. And so they wanted to publish about an Indigenous created movie. And so I found one and we just kind of wrote a book chapter on um, tricksters and the use of like indigenous like characters within it and it had like a pride like primarily indigenous cast as well an indigenous director so we talked about the short film but like the weird part of what about it was I didn't know anything about like the publisher I didn't know anything about the person that was contacting me about the deadlines and that kind of stuff 
I gave them my address to get like an author copy, but I don't know when that's going to come. The only reason that I pretty much agreed to do this was because I knew the person that asked me and trusted them. But if I didn't know the person that asked me and had known the people that they were publishing through, I would be like, no, like I would have put the brakes on it a long time before it got published. Because I have no clue. To this day, I still have no clue who the person was that was corresponding back and forth with me about this book chapter. Do you know when it's actually coming out? I don't know. I'm just like (laughs) waiting for that author copy. (sighs) Is it actually getting published? Oh, I don't know. Supposedly it is. Like I've checked their, like the website and they do publish course material, like not really course material, but like textbooks for university students. So it is a legit thing. But it was one of those things where like there's not a lot, like it was just very strange. I don't know. So I don't know if it, I'm just kind of like. So you might be a published author? Yeah, sure. Maybe, someday? Well, like, I, he did say that, like, the person I was con- corresponding back and forth with did say that, like, other people had submitted and we were pretty much the last two, like, authors that they were waiting for for a book chapter because we were so late in actually getting our stuff in because I was away and the other author was away at conferences so we were like very late in getting our stuff together yeah it was just I don't know it was a weird experience but I think (laughs) it is a weird but I feel like I'm not the only one that has like weird book chapter publishing experiences yeah oh (laughs) no you're not no you're not I think Sheila's gonna (laughs) tell us a story I was approached by my friend Julia King when I finished my MI at the University of Toronto about because she heard about like this chapter about language use mm-hmm. and to be honest I forget a lot about it, what it was but I said okay yeah like we can we can do this I know the person so we can w- work on this and the chapter that we co-authored was about the ability and like place that oral collections and oral histories would have within special collections libraries and like the importance of legitimizing this like very important like knowledge ways and like how that could be housed within yeah special collections within academic libraries or not so it was hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of work the publication fell through as a book and then it was supposed to get rewritten as a special journal publication and and that also fell through and then after we had written it and we're thinking about it, we needed a line on our CV to show a bit about what we had done. And so we were able to present our work at the anti-ra- anti-racist day or the day for elimination of racism conference in Toronto. One of those conferences. Anyway, so because we thought that was a better like avenue, we realized that as we were editing, we're like, this is a little bit weird to be writing about the importance of like oral storytelling and histories. Yeah, we were able to like at least like get something for that work. But would I do that again? Absolutely not. I was able to get something published um, with you. Mm-hmm. I am one of those co-authors. I feel like I came in at the last... Because I was the recommendation that they hired. I like put a little stamp on it of what other TRCs had happened um, throughout the world. Like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I feel like I need to like spell that out now. Because I had <laughs> someone ask me that. Um, they asked you what the TRC was? Yes. Oh, in a geez. webinar about the TRC. What? Why oh, were yeah. they even there? Oh, God. To learn, I Jeez, guess. Get and, out. Just get out. <laughs> and because I will then always have job security if I'm working in that field. I didn't realize how, anyway, I didn't realize how bad we were behind on that, uh, but apparently we are real far behind. We live in an indigenous bubble where everyone knows what the TRC is and has thoughts about it. But anyway, so I've tried to get, when I was still working at the university, I tried to get um, a solo article published. It was a rework of what I had done. I had written a paper about metadata and classification systems when I was in grad school. And one of the reviewers, I forget the exact title of the journal, so I'm not going to name them. I will probably look it up and tell you guys after the microphone is off. Um, (laughs) One of the reviewers said that I needed to be more Canadian. 
Um, what does that even mean? <laughs> I don't know. Um, my indigenous thing was not Canadian enough. Like, you need to, like, scent your paper with, like, maple syrup or something? I guess (laughs) so. I guess so. So, I, and I was, like, really busy at work, and honestly, I had some other stuff going on, and I really didn't like the way that there was no work-life balance with that job, so I said, so I said no, and I withdrew my public, my paper for publication. I've actually just submitted, like, another, like, some article revisions that was left over, from that job, like, last week's. It was just more, not so much a research paper, but just talking about the Making Meaning Symposium that you both helped an incredible amount on. We'll see if that ever gets published. But it was so weird, like, how long it takes for things to get published. Like, mm. by the time that the the paper that we co-authored was published, I already had another job. Cool. Like, people yeah. can see what I did at that job. It's just such a bizarre timeline. It really does, like, favor people who are in permanent positions right. who can get paid to do writing work or it makes it puts a lot of pressure on people who are precariously employed. Oh, if I want to get, like, one of those, like, permanent things, then I have to publish, publish, publish. Right, right, right. Like, do all the things. But then when do you, like, take time to live? You don't. Your life. Yeah. You just don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. My my cousin wrote a book, like a novel, about, like, growing up in small town Saskatchewan and playing hockey. It was amazing to see that. And, like, it's totally... Actually, so when I was having my first interview with Saskatoon Public Library, I completely did not prepare for what do you like to read question. I prepared for everything else, but I I didn't think to think about that. And I was completely caught off guard when they asked me what my favorite book was. I drew a blank, but then I said, the most Métis thing I could have said, and I said, my cousin's book. (laughs) (laughs) And I told them about my cousin's book, and, like, they had a reading at the library, and everything was fine. Uh, Yeah, so they were like, oh, okay, and then they hired me, like, thank God. But, yeah, pro tip for baby librarians out there, at least know what you like to read. Have an answer prepared even if you don't read anymore because yeah I was gonna say you have time to read you've been like working in life yeah. yeah what is this thing reading yeah like, we have the book cod podcast and yeah. none of us read oh, I start I started reading again but only because I just left academia yeah there you go yeah. I read comic books and I read what my professors tell me to and that's about it good job yeah. I feel like I've picked up a few, like, pleasure readings, but mostly the only time that I've been reading right now is when I'm on a plane to, like, go to a conference. I'm like, oh, I have to be on a plane, so I might as well read, but I rarely have time for actually, like, reading for pleasure. That's what made me really, like, that's what I really missed about academia is I didn't feel, like, everything I was reading was super boring, and I didn't do my readings when I was in grad school, and I didn't do my readings when I was in undergrad, so... Just, like, reading for pressure and reading for employment and, like, reading for hopefully being employed at the end of the fiscal year Mm -hmm. just wasn't fun. And I never felt like I learned a lot from, like, that type of reading. I never felt like I was a good academic in, like, the years that I went to university and then was employed by universities Mm. yeah imposter syndrome is real yes indeed it is a real thing how about you tanya i don't i'm trying to think of which experience to even talk about maybe i'll talk about my first publishing experience because i actually did a co-author with my really good friend her name is jamie cataglu who's also a librarian now go figure but we wrote a book review And that was a weird experience because when you're in master's degrees or whatever, undergrad, wherever you are, you're encouraged to criticize and critique different books, which is what we did. And I submitted it for publishing. And I think it's in an OJS journal, like one of those ones at the U of A through um, digital initiatives. And we sent it in and I sent it to my supervisor and my supervisor is like, wait, you sent this in for publication? (laughs) Yeah, why? What's wrong with it? And she's like, you are way too critical. And that was like my first 
my first little insight into the bullshit of academia and scholarship because you never, ever, ever, especially if you don't have like a tenured job or things like that, you never want to critique anyone. Yeah. Because you still need to make nice and have a job at the end of the day. So we actually had to pull the chapter, completely redo it, and send it in again, which was a nightmare. Oh my god. Okay. Totally just stepping in. I once asked one of my academic dads if they've ever been in, like, the same room with somebody that they've given, like, a book review for, Mm -hmm. and they were like, oh, yeah, it happens all the time, and I'm like, is it awkward? And they were like, there's a reason that nobody likes me, and I was (laughs) like, yeah, I was like, especially I hate writing book reviews. I find it to be so awkward, personally, because I really, a lot of people spend so much time, and either, like, your book is going to be great, and I'm going to like it, or your book is going to be crap. And I'm not going to buy it or like, I'm not going to read it and cite it because I don't agree with it. And that's the thing for book reviews with me. It's so like subjective and biased that I'm like, yeah, I just don't like doing them. So when professors ask me to do book reviews, I'm like, nah, not unless I have to. So <laughs> yeah, I think that makes sense. Really. Everything is so subjective. You shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had an assignment in my undergraduate degree um, for a religious studies class I was taking, and the professor asked us to write a book review about her own book. What? That's problematic. Yikes. Obviously, I loved it and thought it was great and couldn't really think of anything critical to say about it. Duh. (laughs) And I got a pretty good mark. Duh. Like, just really shady stuff. I think that highlights a lot of the problems within academia, right? Because you're handing in an assignment, and I I don't think this is just academia, this is publishing in general. You're handing something in, and you're hoping to God at the other end of, I guess, the receiving end, that A, they understand your worldview, and B, Mm -hmm. they're empathetic to your story, right? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the times, there aren't. Like, in libraries, there's, what, under 30 Indigenous librarians? And if I'm sending in an article about Indigenous worldview, are they going to accept it? Or are they not? Right? And that's a question that we all have to kind of ask ourselves. Well, I think it's also like the discipline too. Because there was lots of times when I was in Native Studies where it was like, oh, I don't agree with something that one of my profs or one of their friends have published. And I'm going to take them on, like, head on. And, like, try and dispute everything that they said in their book about, like, Métis identity. But it became, like, a challenge. And they widely, like, accepted me taking them on and being like, though, there's other ways to think about things. And usually they didn't get overly hurt about it or come down on me and, like, mark me, like, really crappy. Usually it was pretty good. But it just depends on what you're doing. And I feel like sometimes librarians are, like, sensitive about what they do and, like, our practices. And it's like, oh, you can't change it's been this way and then mm-hmm. there's like so much resistance things that are being published like ways of changing like library practices a bit of resistance to new librarians as well and like yes yeah yes absolutely and, yeah or people that with like different opinions as well it's it's really strange it's definitely weird transferring over from like native studies and like the way that they do things to library land and the way yeah. that library land functions yeah library land is all smiles right Yes. Depending on who you are. Yeah, I find, like, library land is either, like, all smiles, we've drank all the Kool-Aid and oh, loved God. the taste. <laughs> and Until our... we realize it's poison. <laughs> well, we're waiting for seconds on that Kool-Aid. That's how great it is. Oh my or it's completely bitter and, like, critical. I'm like, where do I fit in on that spectrum? Yeah. So, Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, what else do you uh, have to say about your publishing experiences? Because you have way more probably experience than like the two of us do. Okay, well, I can talk about being a reviewer too, because I was a reviewer for one journal. Yeah, I peer reviewed once. Sure. I don't think they'll ever ask me to peer review ever again. (laughs) I hate peer review. I hate it so much. And that's the number one thing that I say in classes if I'm doing a library session, is that when you check that box off, you're eliminating so many different voices right Mm -hmm. and as an indigenous person like that's probably you too or that's me but when I was reviewing and that's something that's really weird too is that reviewers are evil can I just say that people who are doing peer review are just so mean they think that they're Mm -hmm. high up in their high horse or whatever they have tenure or something like that and it's just 
The things that I've received back, so I've put it in for articles lots of times before. I don't know, it's just awful. They're like, this is stupid. Why are you even thinking that? I was like, well, you know what? Maybe it is stupid, but can you at least be nice about it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so I reviewed once and I tried to be as warm as possible and just be like, you know what? Your work is important, but it just needs to be fixed up to fit within this journal. What was your mm-hmm. review experience like? Oh, I think I was definitely like the mean person that was just oh, like, you're why mean are you even... <laughs> Yeah, because, like, the paper was great, but if they would have removed, like, a section out of their paper, it would have been 100% better because it was trying to blend two communities together or two, like, ideologies together, and it just didn't work. And I think that's why it came to me because it was, like, talking about the TRC and trying to, like, implement the recommendations but the community was not an indigenous community that the author was talking about so it was talking about like the 94 calls to action and how they treat traditional knowledge but it was not like an indigenous community Mm -hmm. so I was just kind of like why are you doing this like the half and the one half of your paper is great but like you know we can't just take one thing that's indigenous specific and try and put it on all communities Mm -hmm. so I was just like a little bit mean and salty about it And other times I'm like, yeah, it was great until this happened. It was just like me sitting at my computer in my like little cubicle. Smash, smash, smash. (laughs) And I think I even like texted you and was like, I feel like I'm being really mean right now. Like validate that I'm like right and not losing my mind over this paper. So, (laughs) But I think that that really speaks to like how we get people with imposter syndrome. If... We're just getting, like, mean reviews, and if that's how we think that we're supposed to create better knowledge or whatever, I, yeah. I, I don't I don't know, but, like, I think there's something there of, like, what is wrong with this whole cycle, like, this chicken-egg, like, cycle of, like... Violence, mean, a cycle mean, of violence. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mean reviews, imposter syndrome, and then mean reviews, imposter syndrome. I don't know. Like, yeah. there's definitely something... Something there. And yeah, it is it is completely violent. Like, with, like, my experience, like, obviously, if you don't understand how, like, this Indigenous perspective is not Canadian at all, I'm going to click withdraw instead of mm-hmm. try to fit it into a Canadian bubble. You're not ready. You're not ready for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I didn't want to waste my time on that. Yeah, <laughs> totally. What was it like working at, like, the press, so actually, like, within a publishing company? How much do I say out loud? I don't know. Whatever you feel comfortable with. You do you. (laughs) I think my experience there was really problematic because of the internship that I was a part of. Uh, Mm. Right. Right? Because... I was just coming into library school, and I got this internship. Like, yay, that's awesome. I don't have to pay for school because I'm a broke-ass. That's important. But when I got there, nobody asked me what I wanted to learn. Not a single Mm. person asked me what I was interested in, which is, I mean, it's okay. I'm just there to help them out and kind of fill out some gaps, maybe. Who knows? But I was put on metadata for about, like, nine months. Can I tell you how much I hate metadata? I'm so sorry, Sheila, but I hate it. I still don't understand it. And I'm like, I took a whole class on metadata and I still am just like, no. It's basically just data entry and you're like, oh my God, I can't deal with this. Yes. I mean, that was torturous. And I told my supervisor at the time, I'm like, oh, I can't do this. Can I please switch out? I'm... I know that this is an excellent exercise in what I don't want to do for the rest of my life. Yeah. So that that was awful. I was really interested in editing. And I think the thing that I enjoyed the most was one of the acquisitions editors asked me if I could help them with their bibliography and their citations. And he basically said, here's the citations. Can you find it? So it was a nice little scavenger hunt for me, which I actually really liked. Nice. And that got published in the book, which was awesome course they didn't get credit for it but whatever (laughs) yeah other than that I mean I was brought in to work on a a huge conference and that was the writing stick conference and that was a very interesting experience because right at that point in my life I was really like kind of contemplating my identity and seeing like okay who am I what's going on what does this have to do with the larger history of things and it was actually like a really traumatic time (laughs) probably those couple of years that I was in library school because you don't realize how racist people are 
mm. until you're stuck in a, in a school or in a classroom where everyone is white every single person and you're like oh my god I can't even and of course because I'm white passing people say a lot of awful things but working in the press I definitely got a little bit of that too because I was almost expected to be the Indigenous expert which at that time I wasn't and that was a lot of responsibility for me to take on I was lucky in that some another Indigenous person kind of got brought into the project. If not for her, I probably yeah. would have just exploded. I think it's also, like, problematic, this whole idea of, like, an Indigenous expert as well. Is there anybody out there that's actually, like, an expert in every single community, like, across Canada? Mm, nope. I'm an expert at making mistakes and putting my foot in my mouth. That's about <laughs> it! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can definitely talk about my community and, like, communities that I've worked with. But even then, there's only so much about the communities I've worked with that I know. Like, I'll never be 100% of an insider within that community. Mm-hmm. Like, my own community, I could definitely talk about that. But I don't think we could ever be, like, an expert on every community. And if there is someone out there that's listening to this and they are an expert in every community, please contact us. Because we would like to interview you. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us everything. Yeah, yeah. If you are this mythical, like, yeah. expert, indigenous expert. Oh, I definitely. Think if that person exists, I think that person is exhausted because <laughs> of all the emotional labor they yeah. have to do. They're probably like, like, go away, Kayla. Oh. <laughs> There's only been, like, a few projects going on at once where I've, like, been asked to be, like, the indigenous person on the indigenous project. And, like, oh, if I can only handle that, like, so many times, how could you possibly be that for everyone? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. exhausting. It's really exhausting being that Indigenous person because you're dealing with microaggressions and just bullshit all the time. When I was kind of going through it, I didn't even realize or recognize what was happening because, mm-hmm. I don't know, there wasn't really anyone that I could talk to. I didn't know Kayla until a year after the internship. Do you know what I mean? So, I don't know. I think having oh, an no. internship is me. really we just important. weren't, like, tight, tight buddies. <laughs> we weren't buds. We were kind of feeling each other out, I think. Kind of like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, but that's... There's other reasons for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably. Definitely. Yeah. There is. We've, we've talked about it before. <laughs> We won't get into it. No. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also really, like, powerful to feel, like, really lonely in, like, these big industries, whether it's libraries whether it's publishing, whether... Because you don't know how the system is set up. Yeah. You don't, you know? And, like, even even coming from Toronto... Mm-hmm. And I'm not actually from Toronto. I just moved here from Toronto. I only am from Toronto when I'm trying to be fancy. Um, <laughs> fancy Toronto. <laughs> uh-huh. But, like, even coming from there where it's, like, the most diverse city in the world, they're not very good at dealing with Indigenous anything. Yeah. Especially within their white library schools. And it wasn't as white as some of them, but definitely there's a dominant flavor yeah. and color. <laughs> or it's, like, one of those things, too. If there is, like, another person of color or, like, Indigenous person, it's, like, you're expected to be friends yes. with each other. And, like, you're going to have so many things in common and just be best buds. And, like, luckily, like, the three of us get along, but I've definitely been in meetings or something where another Indigenous person has been there, and they're like, oh, well, you'll work great together. And it's like, well, how do you know that? Yeah. Like, just because we're both, like, Indigenous does not mean that we have to like each other and yeah. be, like, best friends forever and work on this project. Like, yeah. we're all different. I don't like. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, we're all different. And that doesn't also mean that we have the, like, same views and opinions. Like, when it comes to editing, Tanya and I have things that we definitely agree on but there's some things that I'll definitely like challenge Tanya on or she'll challenge me on mm-hmm. because we're not the same person it's not like we all have like the same indigenous brain and mm-hmm. it's like shared yeah like and we're, we're born all, like, with it yeah we're all on a different <laughs> spectrum too of knowledge right because yeah. Kayla you have way more community experience than I have or probably will ever have you know so when you say something I value when you say it right yeah I know you know what you're talking about <laughs> most yeah. of the time whereas, I have my moments <laughs> yeah exactly whereas my my I don't know expertise is more in like books and things or yeah I don't know yeah you know those types of things working with academics and scholars blah <laughs> yeah it's interesting that you bring that up because that's why I don't understand there's a lot of pressure with indigenizing everything right now 
uh, whatever that means, I will never know. Cluster hires is like seen as a solution mm-hmm. for a lot of things in academia, especially. So hiring groups of people at a time and then like hiring more groups of people and then more groups of people. I I don't understand how that will work just yeah. to make everyone get along. No, I don't know. And like expecting like people to be like your friends and also your colleagues and also your collaborators just because you happen to be indigenous at the same time uh, with the same employer, it's kind of weird and not really how it works Yeah, for me personally. Yeah, I definitely heard an elder say, so I was at an event with the faculty of law a few days ago and an elder that was there actually said that she didn't understand this like indigenizing everything and especially because like the university and universities in general are a colonial institution And she pretty much just said, like, you'll never be able to indigenize this place because it is a colonial institution. Mm -hmm. And then she went on to say, like, the most indigenizing that you're ever going to actually be able to accomplish is just hiring indigenous people to work there. Mm -hmm. And that's about it. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, especially in some cases, there are places that do look at their, like, internal policies and practices. But really, like, we can't indigenize a place if they won't remove, like, problematic, like, super colonial policies and practices from their actual institution. So if we're still working in a framework like that, but we're just hiring Indigenous people, we're not really, like, indigenizing or doing anything better. Problematic Mm. policies and problematic people. Yeah. (laughs) You know, that's that's another thing. So publishing, libraries, those kind of places don't want to actually change their institution or, like, the way that they work. (laughs) then they're not going to be able to, like, indigenize. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just let's because we're working there doesn't mean anything. Yeah, let's go back to that aspect of hiring. So something that we all kind of talked about. There's a lot of com- or conversation around recruitment, but no one ever talks about retention. Mm-hmm. And that's my biggest bone, my biggest, like, frustration. Nah, whatever. Yeah. Because they're, cl- they're cluster hiring a bunch of people, but they're not actually having services or mentorship or anything to deal with the stuff that we've had to deal with. Yeah. And as an Indigenous hire, I'm often expected to do cultural training and all these other things, which is okay. Like, I actually don't mind doing that because I, I like teaching. That's something that I like to do. I don't know. I don't like teaching things that people tell me that I have to teach, you know, because we have Mm -hmm. the truth and reconciliation thing. And a lot of people still don't know the truth. But I'm beyond that. And I don't like reliving that truth over and over and over again, because then I'm presenting myself as a victim. And that does something to you mentally, you know? Yeah. Well, for me, I'm just like, I'm at this point where I'm so like new into my career, and I'm only on like a year long contract. Mm -hmm. But it's one of those things where like, the universities, they hire based on like merit, they go over this big list of things like that they want their new hires to have. And some of those things are like publishing. Everybody has this like, especially in academia, you have that like dream of tenure, especially like where you are faculty members as academic librarians at the U of A. So they want you to be publishing, but you look at contracts and you're like, well, where is this magical time that I'm going to have to be publishing, right? Like, I don't have time to sit down and write, like, a 15-page paper for an academic journal. I'm busy doing other stuff. I'm working with students. So how is my merit going to be measured if I don't actually have the time to be publishing and I'm trying to get my name out there? Or also, if I can't be publishing in, like, academic journals and I'm more looking at, like, open access journals, how is that going to be measured and compared to other Mm-hmm. people so people who are sitting behind their desk not engaging with the community or with the right. students or anything are actually getting further ahead mm-hmm. yeah. whereas yeah. you are actually doing good community work and yeah yeah you're not going to be able to just have anything to show for it you know yeah and Other i don't know if i'm just like, like rare librarian that actually likes working with students and going to open houses and mm-hmm. stuff like that because i would rather do that than sit behind my computer and write a paper yeah. Because that's, I yeah. feel like that's more meaningful. I know, like, actually getting out there and, like, publishing is important, but I would rather, like, do a conference paper and then talk about it than just publish, like, in a journal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a lot of the way that publishing, especially in academia, is set up rewards that not having a work-life balance. I don't right. know what it's like for people who author other types of things, but I know, like, a lot of artists will be, like, 
tied very heavily to their work and like not have to do anything outside of their work or like you know we have that image of like the writer who's just like drinking like either coffee or like alcohol wine Wine. (laughs) yeah and like writing constantly and like a life of like lonely rejections and like that doesn't seem very appealing to me either so it's like we we really do have a skewed work reward balance with publishing. I don't know. I think one of the things that I really like doing is publishing though with other people, but you really have to be almost like choosy on who you publish with and be respectful of their time and also their interests. Just mm-hmm. like I was saying before, like just because we're Indigenous doesn't mean that we're all the same. And there's a lot of times that I've asked somebody and been like, hey, do you want to publish on this? But they're just not interested in it so that's just like other labor and time that they don't have but also the publishing world is like so weird and hard to negate that it's like you almost don't want to do it by yourself I almost feel like the publishing world and library land are the whitest places you could possibly be yeah 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 actually I heard a few quite a few people say that like other indigenous folks are like uh why are you over there why are you doing this and like oh I don't know I'm interested in books I like them but it's true it's one of those things that we kind of all know without saying out loud do you know what I mean yeah 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 I feel you so I guess the question is like how do you can you indigenize it or should it even should we work with them or I don't even know what the question should be well I think like publishing is definitely something that's beneficial to indigenous people especially like we have such like a strong um, kind of cohort of newly emerging like indigenous authors that are coming and I love working with them and like reading their works and it they usually just give me all the feels and especially if I know the person like one of their books come out I'm so proud and of course I'm gonna buy it but I think it's like a really great medium for some people to get their ideas and thoughts. I think it's more like just the way that we interact with Indigenous people that needs to change because it's definitely like can't fall under this trope that like Indigenous people are only like oral people and like Mm -hmm. publishing is something that they're not into because there are definitely like amazing writers that are Indigenous people and we've seen that like there's so many big name authors out there and great emerging authors. I think the practice just needs to change so that it's more like transparent and more inclusive to Indigenous people and then maybe more people will want to be publishing that aren't doing it now. You're right about the community thing. Like, I'm just thinking about when Billy Ray got that, that award and we were all just, like, swooning and so happy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, especially that's when like he a, cried. Yeah, because yeah. that's when someone gets an award like that, it's just a, a win for the whole Indigenous community. Yeah. And that's something that we need. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think it is important for us to be able to tell our stories and to make it easier for the people that come after us mm-hmm. to, if they if they want to put the free labor into like getting their um, works published um, to try to support that as much as we can to have like a fully indigenized parallel publishing industry that's reliant not on them but only on us I don't think it's something that we'll ever I hope we can get pretty close and I hope we can get more and more people doing and like putting out really rad stuff that people need to hear and listen and see but I don't I don't know maybe that's just my jadedness coming out but I don't know (laughs) we're all just jaded and salty yeah (laughs) I, I don't know if it's possible And I think, too, like, publishing is also a way of, like, talking about our pain and, like, our truth as Indigenous people, everything that's happened to us in the past. But it's a way of getting it out there to everybody. And it's a way of just spreading the word without actually standing up at, like, a podium and being like, this is my pain and my trauma. It's a Mm -hmm. way of almost releasing some of the past and Mm -hmm. talking about things. I I know that writing is super, it's really good for healing. But for me, I'm just worried about, people getting off on that trauma. Yes. <laughs> like, there's no Poverty other porn? nice way to say yeah. it. Yeah. Poverty porn. Because, like, uh, I just... It makes me feel gross inside when I see something like that. And people are like, oh, if you have one really great book that's really raw and uh, emotional and then you have a really powerful book, for example, how do I explain this? So, I guess let's talk about Moonshot, the graphic novel, versus The Outside Circle. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the outside circle is way, way, way more popular right now, but that's because it's a, it's, I don't know why, 
maybe it's because it's a it's because it's more story. like and it's more like educational. Mm-hmm. I feel like because I've had to read the outside circle for multiple classes on like gangs or like treatment centers, trauma because that's what it's focused around. Mm-hmm. So it's almost more like of an education, like it's used in educational context. Whereas yeah. like Moonshot. It's more of like a for for me. It's more like a pleasure reading. Like I don't see the outside circle as being like a pleasure reading for myself. Like it's more of something that I've had to use as a scholarly source. But why can't Moonshot be a scholarly source? You know, because for me that that just shows like indigenous awesomeness all in a single volume, yeah. right? Well, it could be used as a scholarly source. Mm-hmm. I guess that's what kind of what I'm going to is why are we looking at traumatic stories versus resilient stories? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And I don't have I don't have an answer to that. I'm just yeah. throwing it out there. It's that shock value thing. We like a traumatic shock value system and story because then it allows us to feel good about where we are. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, okay, well, that's not happening to me. Like, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, resilience, it's harder for us to accept that from anyone. It, like, puts us, like, oh, I'm not very resilient. It puts us in a more awkward situation to have to grapple with how come I'm not as resilient as these people mm-hmm. yeah whereas like it's easier to say like oh okay well I'm not I'm not like that thank god and we're all thinking that, now we're all thinking now like yeah, oh my like, oh. huh and on that happy note yeah we're getting to be about time here yeah, um let's end it off on this yeah so note. I don't know maybe it's one of those things that in publishing we need to stop looking at publishing only narratives that are about trauma and thinking more about like the resiliency aspect of it. Mm-hmm. More stories and more like examples of what is possible. Yeah. You know, like if we're only seeing one side of the truth, that's not truth. Yeah. So hopefully we can explore some of these questions throughout this, the podcast. I know we have a couple of authors lined up that we're going to interview. So that's going to be really sp- sweet. Yeah. I guess that's it. Hi. Hi everyone. Thanks hi, for hi. listening. Thanks for listening. <laughs>